Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word for us, and pray that we might understand something in it for us this day and for the days to come. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about John Muir. Are you familiar with John Muir? John Muir is probably the most famous and influential naturalist in American history. He's certainly among them. His works and writings are responsible for such treasures as Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, and much of our knowledge about so many parts of our country, especially the places that particularly when he was writing in the late 1800s and the very early 1900s, these are places that most Americans had never seen or imagined, places like Alaska and the uh, remote parts of the Southwest and the West. Muir was once called the son of the wilderness, the son of the wilderness. The son of the wilderness wrote this invitation into the wilderness. Come to the woods, he wrote, for here is rest. There is no repose like that of the green deep woods. Sleep in forgetfulness of all ill. Of all the upness accessible to mortals, there is no upness comparable to the mountains. His words, especially words like this, this invitation, they're reflective and they're beautiful. It makes me, every time I read them, makes me want to go to these places that he describes. I, I resonate with what he says, how he describes it. And when I have experienced places of nature, I've connected in many ways with these words because there's something quite appealing about it, this invitation into the wilderness. There is no repose like it. There is no up- upness comparable to it. Reading Muir's writings about nature is a wonderful and romantic experience, and it becomes even more so when you consider the wilderness about which he is writing. He writes about mountaintops, mountaintops that were known to be harsh, difficult landscapes, but he writes about them in a way that makes them pretty enticing, right? They're pretty inviting. He writes, keep close to nature's heart and break clear away once in a while and climb a mountain or spend a week in the woods. Wash your spirit clean, he writes. Or this one, everybody needs beauty as well as bread, places to play in and pray in where nature may heal and give strength to body and soul. In reading Muir's works, I began to wonder a little bit whether he was simply delusional, ignoring all of the harshness and difficulties of the wilderness. But this isn't the case at all, and even though some of these works aren't as well known as others, he writes this as well. He writes, going to the woods is going home, for I suppose we came from the woods originally, but in some of nature's forests, The adventurous traveler seems a feeble, unwelcome creature, wild beasts and the weather trying to kill him, the rank, tangled vegetation armed with spears and stinging needles barring his way and making life a hard struggle. Muir recognized the untamedness of the wilderness. Even as he wrote things like, Oh, these vast, calm, measureless mountain days, days in whose light everything seems equally divine, opening a thousand windows to show us God. 
He also acknowledged the difficulty and the challenge that so many humans experience when they go into the wilderness. And so I wondered what drove Muir into the wilderness. Where did his sense of adventure come from, his desire to see these new things connect in these new ways? And I didn't have to look very far. It turns out that Muir actually grew up in a very strict Calvinist family. I think it's interesting that the words of our last hymn were drawn from Calvin's, uh, Calvin's teaching and Calvin's words, beautiful words, but we know that in many Calvinist, strict Calvinist traditions, hmm, it can be a little difficult. He was born in Scotland, but he moved to Wisconsin with his family when he was quite young, and his family had a very harsh Calvinist father at the helm. Muir worked for his father, of course, from a young age on the family farm, and from a very early age, he spent hours and hours doing the wrong things, according to his father. He spent hours and hours also learning about animals and the land. His early years, he says, were spent navigating the punishments of his father and his explorations into nature and into books about religion and the outdoors. One biographer writes this about his father. He says, Daniel Muir was the harsh taskmaster, physical and moral, who believed that sweat and pain were the only means to achieve heaven, that acts of childhood and love of nature were synonymous with evil, and that both represented dangerous tendencies to be whipped out of a boy. A harsh landscape, indeed. In 1860, Muir went to the University of Wisconsin. Did you know that? I did not know that. He went to the University of Wisconsin and studied the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. And he began to follow their practices about writing about nature in an intimate, what, what became known as a conversational tone, a conversational way that connected the experiences of nature and the inward journey. It was in nature that Muir connected with God, that his religious upbringing with the God that his religious upbringing tried to introduce him to. I think that's interesting, that he, he had to get away from it to find God. It was in the wilderness and all that came with it, the, the things that distracted, the things that, that drew him away from God fell away. They disappeared away. And so it was in the wilderness, stripped away from all those other things, that he found God. And in many ways, it seems counterintuitive that the wilderness can have and does have this impact. In the wilderness, our existence becomes so centrally about survival. Where will we sleep? How will we eat? And it seems that our individual needs would then predominate. That would become our focus. When the Spirit drew Jesus into the desert, there's nothing for him to eat. He doesn't eat. He doesn't eat for 40 days. And during those 40 days, our scripture says that indeed he was tempted that whole time. He was tempted by the devil. As Kathy said, Jesus had just been baptized. So if you've been following the past few weeks, we're going back, we're going back to the beginning. We had moved along with Jesus through those early periods, and now Luke's gospel is taking us back to the beginning well, the lectionary is taking us back to the beginning of Luke's gospel. He's just been baptized right after the baptism. Right after the baptism, the Spirit draws him into the wilderness, and there he's tempted by the devil. In biblical times, wilderness was not described 
the ways, in the ways that Muir describes the wild. Wilderness was seen as synonymous with a place of harshness, with a place of death, with a place of, of scarcity and loss. It's interesting because as I was thinking about this and reading about Muir's childhood, it seemed a lot more like wilderness from the Bible sounded like what he experienced in his home life, far more than what he experienced when he went out into the wild. Wilderness was seen as a harsh and desolate, desolate place, not a place one would go to find goodness. Wilderness was a place of loss, of death, of wandering. For people, right? For people. Interestingly, for the animals living in the wilderness, even the wilderness of the Bible, there doesn't seem to be the same sense of inhabitability. This is a theme throughout creation, though, not just among animals and humans, but among us as well. The places, often the places most difficult for us are, are the habitats of others, of other people, people different from us. You see, wilderness has nuances and perspectives, and so does scarcity scarcity. For Jesus in the desert, being tempted in the wilderness, he's also experiencing scarcity. He's without food. He's famished, we heard in our text. He's famished. Jesus is tempted three times, three specific ways by Satan, in ways that look toward the coming passion of Jesus. This is part of why this text is used at the outset of Lent. First of all, Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days, right? An illusion or where we get our uh, 40 days of Lent from. But then also these three images, that, uh, these three temptations that come from, uh, come from Satan at the beginning of Jesus' ministry are going to then allude to things that will happen leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're starting, we're starting with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in this moment of scarcity where he is without. And again, we'll journey with Jesus to the cross and the despair of his death. And so, yes, Jesus is experiencing scarcity in this moment, and this is why during Lent we often talk of giving things up. You've heard of that for years, right, of giving things up for Lent, or trying to reduce distractions in our lives in the hopes that we would be left with nothing other than our reliance upon God. This is why fasting has been a part traditionally of the church's practice of Lent, or, or like I say, giving things up. I mentioned on Ash Wednesday that the focus on giving things up can actually sometimes be a distraction itself from God because people focus so much on that thing or activity or whatever it is that they're giving up that, that God's the last thing on their mind. That, that was never the intention. The intention was for it to be a spiritual act of, of uh, release of something so that you would have more room for God in your life. But uh, that's something you need to figure out individually of whether a practice like that is beneficial or not. But what happens here in our text is that Jesus enters the wilderness. He's drawn into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he chooses to fast. And when he's tempted and tested, his reliance upon God, his devotion to God, is what comes forth. That's what is revealed, and it's also what sustains him. There's a lot that just happened in what I said. First, he chooses the desert. He's, he's led by the Holy Spirit, but one foot in front of the other, he takes himself into the desert. He chooses to go. 
during Lent, every, every year during Lent, we're invited to choose to go into the wilderness, into the desert, to go into whatever our particular wilderness might be. Sometimes these are places we don't want to go. But sometimes, sometimes we're already there. Sometimes we're already feeling as though we are in the wilderness. We're so keenly aware of our wilderness journey that we don't need to be invited. We don't need to be taken there. We're already there. We're already living in the wilderness. We're already living in a place of harsh reality or challenging circumstances or unknownness or difficulty or pain. Like mirror on his father's farm and around the dinner table of scorn, our wilderness is sometimes as close to us as can be. In many ways, the past two years have been a wilderness that has sometimes felt suffocating behind the masks, locked in our homes, away from people we love. So much so that, that even folks who, who don't want to do those things focus so much on their anger related to them that they're in their own wilderness as well. It's, it's been a time of wilderness. For some of you, though, I know you've experienced also very different, very personal wildernesses, wildernesses of loss, of illness, of grief, of uncertainty. And even those wildernesses have been compounded because of the pandemic. But then we're watching every day on the news as a beautiful country with beautiful people made in the image of God is being ravaged, turning cities and towns into wilderness and sending the people of Ukraine into the streets with guns into bunkers and into a wandering wilderness of fear, loss, oppression, and death. Wilderness, my friends, wilderness, it's all around us. It's all around us. So yes, sometimes we don't have to choose to enter the wilderness. The second observation is that Jesus chooses scarcity in the desert. He could have found food to eat. He could have eaten. The devil even taunts him with it and says, create some food. You can do it. You're the God of the universe. But Jesus chooses scarcity. And again, this is, a, this is an invitation that the church traditionally has offered to people during Lent. This is why the sacrifices. It's interesting. There's a little bit of controversy in the Catholic Church right now because as much as Friday is meant to be a day of, of eating fish, right? No, no, not eating meat. The a Catholic, a Catholic leader came out and said, no lobster on Fridays, because that's not sacrifice, and that's not scarcity, because some people, that was their answer, was, well, let's, if we can't eat meat, let's eat lobster. I thought that was fantastic, and it's kind of fun, but um, it made me want lobster, but... Uh, but yes, this is why people sacrifice. Jesus chose scarcity when he went to the desert. Jesus fasted, and so we too are invited to embrace scarcity. 
But friends, there are times in our lives, there are times in the lives of so many people, but there are times in your lives when you don't have to choose scarcity, when scarcity comes to you, when, when life already feels scarce. For many people, and again, I can't ignore the terror in Ukraine and the scarcity being experienced for the people of that country, but for many people, for many people, scarcity isn't a choice at all, it's a reality. Whether it's scarcity in the form of lack of resources or shelter, emotional scarcity or loneliness, the never-quenched thirst for something that just doesn't seem to come, whatever that scarcity may be, it surely isn't a foreign feeling to us, and there are times in life when we don't need to choose it. We already know it. And so instead, I offer that during this Lenten season, we recognize that wilderness and scarcity are realities of our lives. And they're not just reality of our lives, but they're realities of the lives of the people around us, the people with whom we're worshiping, but the people we don't even know. And while these realities of wilderness and scarcity may not be realities that you are experiencing right now, they are realities that you have and that you will experience. And they're realities that people you love are experiencing. And realities that people who are loved by God are experiencing, people you've never even met. The world is filled with wilderness and scarcity. But the places of wilderness and scarcity, before his ministry even begins, the places of wilderness and scarcity are the places where Jesus went, where Jesus is, where Jesus chose to go. The place where the Holy Spirit draws Jesus and where Jesus is able to resist all of these temptations, the temptations from a devil who knew, who knew exactly what Jesus wanted and needed, who offered to fix the scarcity and deliver Jesus from all the threats. And Jesus resisted these temptations and proclaimed his obedience, his obedience to God and his reliance upon God. Friends, whatever the wilderness of our life may be, God steps into that wilderness place. God steps into wilderness places. God steps into the scarcity. God steps into your wilderness. God is with you in the midst of your wilderness, and God reorders the realities of our wilderness and takes a place of temptation and threat, a place of fear and anxiety, a place of loss. God reorders our wilderness into a place of beauty, a place of infinite goodness beyond our comprehension. Being willing to recognize our wilderness, being willing to go into the wilderness, it stops being about sacrifice or, or doing something that seems harsh or sad or depriving. Really, it becomes stepping away from the harshness and into a place of rest, of renewal, stripping away the distractions so that we can allow God to do what God does best, love, create, care for, nurture, so that we can allow God to be God 
in our lives and allow ourselves to experience what God is waiting to bring us and to allow God to use us, to use us to walk alongside others in their wilderness, to choose like Jesus did, to step into that uncertain space, that uncertain wilderness, walk alongside others. Because that's even what Jesus did after he came out of the wilderness. When Jesus returns, his ministry begins, and it is a ministry over and over again of stepping into the wilderness of other people. He brings to people all of those things that the devil tries to give him in the desert. He feeds them. He gives them water. He ultimately goes to the cross for them, for us, in the ultimate act of protection and love and salvation Jesus enters our wilderness, and he enters the wilderness of all who are suffering. During Lent, we welcome Jesus into our wilderness. And having encountered Jesus in our wilderness, we then follow Jesus where Jesus goes. We look for and see the suffering of the world. We don't turn a blind eye. We look for and see the ways that we can be bearers of love to a hurting world. We look for and see the eyes of the people that Christ sees. The ones where they are in their wilderness. I think Muir was drawn into the wild, not just to escape the harshness of his father's misguided attempts to understand God. Muir went into the wilderness because that's where he found and understood the God of Scripture, the God of the good news. Come to the woods, for here is rest. There is no repose like that of the deep green woods. Sleep in forgetfulness of all ill. Of all upness accessible to mortals, there is no upness comparable to the mountains. Friends, this Lent, may you experience God in your wilderness. May you find rest. May you be transformed by God's love for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.